I hope you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 8. This morning we will begin, we will finish Mark 8, and this will also be our final time in the Gospel of Mark for this year. As I mentioned, next week we will move into our season of Advent, and we will begin considering the coming of Christ and the hope that he's coming again. We'll return to the Gospel of Mark early next year, but this morning, as I've been considering this passage this week, I've been asking the question, I wonder how honest we are with ourselves, how honest we are with others about what it truly means to be followers of Jesus. I wonder how you would answer that. How honest are we with ourselves and with others about what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus? I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of reading reviews. We live in a great time. A time where before you buy anything or before you go anywhere, you can pull out your phone and you can read the experiences of those who have owned it or gone there before you have. It's fantastic. I'm a big fan. I want to know what to expect. This year as a family, we've enjoyed uh, exploring new places and we've started hiking more and checking out new trails. And what I've learned is before we drive, especially any distance, to go to a trail, it's important that I, I open my trail app and I read what others have said about that particular trail. The app has told me times that trails are, no longer exist. It's not worth going. Or that there's trees that have fallen across the path. When I read those reviews, I'm always hopeful that they're accurate. Right? They're only as good as the people who write them and their experience, but... There was one time this year when we decided we were going to a trail, and I, I looked at the review, and it said it's an easy trail with great views. Oh, this is great. It was a really hot day, 100 degrees. We weren't going to be out for long. We weren't looking for a challenge. Easy hike, great views. Sounds great. So Parker, Graham, and I, we head out there, and it was not easy. It was probably the most difficult trail that we have ever been on in this area. We decided to tackle it anyways, and it was a hike. Thankfully, it was just that. It was just a hike. There was nothing of any great significance. But it reminded me of how important it is that we get good information. We need information that's true and accurate. When we think about our faith, when we think about what it means to follow Christ, I wonder how honest we are, how accurate we are with ourselves and with others about what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus. The reality is we live in a time when there's a lot of incorrect information about the nature of the Christian life, about what it demands, about what it costs, about what's expected of followers of Jesus. And I don't want to spend too long here. I don't know how helpful it is to talk about other churches and ministries, but it's worth acknowledging there are a lot of churches and pulpits that are misrepresenting what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In large part, the message of American Christianity is that following Jesus is primarily about you. So if you want to feel better about yourself, then come to Jesus. 
If you want to have financial success, come to Jesus. Better relationships, better health. You want to learn to love yourself more? Come to Jesus. Because Jesus loves you and he wants you to be happy. And of course, that means whatever you define as happiness. These are common things that we hear. And let's be clear, there's no better life than a life lived in Jesus. And there's no greater joy to be found than the joy that's found in following Christ. Those who come to God through Christ are truly blessed. But we must also admit that the blessing and joy are different. They're defined differently than the world may define blessing and joy. So here's my, my fear. My fear is that many people are being invited to Jesus, but they don't really have any idea of what that means. They're going to be invited to the Christian life, but what they're being invited to is very different than what Jesus says the Christian life is supposed to be. Don't take my word for it. Just like reviews posted online, I could be wrong. And I have very little interest in giving you my opinion about what the Christian life should be. But we come together each week to open God's word together, don't we? So we can hear from him and hear how he defines the Christian life. So what does Jesus say we should expect in the Christian life? I'm going to have to hang on for just one more minute because before we read the passage, I do want to remind you where we are because we are picking up right in the middle of a conversation that we've now broken into three different weeks. The context is important. If you were with us two weeks ago, you'll remember we came to that great confession from Peter. And this comes after many chapters of reading about the doubts and the unbelief of the disciples. They struggled. They were slow to believe that Jesus was God. They were slow to trust him well. Two weeks ago, we started walking with the disciples and with Jesus, walking from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. And as they're walking, Jesus asked those two questions. You'll remember from verses 27 to 30. First, he asked them, who do people, who, what's the general consensus? What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And then he asked the more important question. He asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's when we get that great confession from Peter. You are the Christ. It's the first time we've heard that kind of declaration up to this point, eight chapters in, and this is the first time. And Peter was right. Jesus is the Christ. He made the right confession. But the problem is, is that while he was right in what he said, he didn't really understand what he said. He understood things about the Messiah, but he didn't understand the full picture. See, for Peter, if you were to ask him that day, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? He probably would have told you. It means he's king. It means that he has come to defeat the enemy. He's come to establish his kingdom, and now he will set up his throne, and he will rule and reign forever, and we will live in perfect peace. And Peter's not wrong. But his understanding was incomplete and the timetable was wrong. 
So after Peter makes this great confession of faith, Jesus takes the opportunity to start explaining to his disciples more fully what it means that he is the Christ. It's where we were last week in verses 31 to 33. Jesus explains to his disciples things that they had never considered before. That the way he would become the conquering king was by first becoming a suffering servant. That the way he would establish his kingdom was by walking the road of suffering and death. This was what he wanted them to know, but it wasn't well received. Remember what Peter does? He pulls Christ aside and rebukes him. No, Lord, this must never happen. You must not suffer. So we're, again, we talk about expectations. Peter and the rest of the disciples had certain expectations. Certain things that they believed would happen. And as we considered last week, when God's plans didn't align with their plans, they had objections. We're all prone to wanting God to operate based on our terms. So we often miss that God's plan is the better plan, and in fact, that his plan is the path to salvation. Remember, if Jesus doesn't suffer, Peter's not forgiven, and neither are you. Yet Peter, thinking that he knows better than Jesus, says, no, you must not suffer. And Jesus, knowing what he knows, lovingly tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your eyes on the things of God but on the things of men. I'm still hanging on to that application from last week of how often we think we know better when all along God is working out his plan for our salvation. Peter did not like what Jesus had to say about his suffering. What Peter did not know yet is that the conversation was not over. See, we pick up today where Jesus says, not only must I suffer, but you too must suffer. What Jesus wants his disciples to know, what he wants us to know, is what it means to truly be a disciple of his. He wants us to know what to expect. He tells us up front the nature of the Christian life. And so, do you want a review from the mouth of God about what you can expect in the Christian life? We've come to it this morning. Mark chapter 8. Our passage starts in verse 34. I actually want to back up to verse 31 and reread the portion that we considered last week, and then, then we'll read up through chapter 9, verse 1. So Mark 8, verse 31. Hear the word of God. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then after three days, rise. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then calling to the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain 
the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with his holy angels? He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. As that God would add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been considering these conversations. Peter and Jesus and the rest of the disciples, and they were more intimate interactions. But as we come to verse 34, we see that more people join the conversation. It says that Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples. And I don't want us to miss it. I think it's important. It's important to recognize that what Jesus says at this point is not only for the 12. See, some, some have wrongly argued that some of these really hard sayings of Jesus, well, these were meant for those who came first. This was meant for the 12. I don't think we can say that from this text. It says, Jesus calls the crowd, and then he says, if anyone would come after me. What I want you to recognize, church, is that this is for us. Verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And this is a passage you know well, isn't it? You've read it often. It's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. You've probably heard it preached. But it's a really significant passage. What we get in verse 34 is the primary command. And then in verses 35 through 38, we get the support for the command. Here's what you must do as a follower of Christ. And then we get four verses of and here's why. Here's why you should do this. And in this command, Jesus gives us two things. Two things that he expects of those who would follow him. We read here that the call to follow Jesus is a call to self-denial. And then second, a call to follow Jesus is a call to sacrifice and suffering. Self-denial sacrifice, suffering. I don't think we have to go any further than this to recognize how different this is from the way Christianity is often described, marketed. But before we rush to point out other people's shortcomings, we should consider our own hearts. Ask ourselves the question, how do we view our call to follow Jesus? What do you think of when you think of God's calling on your life? What's the nature of your faith being worked out? Well, as we consider what Jesus says, he says first that if we're going to follow him, if we're going to be his followers, it's a call to self-denial. Now, Let's be clear. I don't believe this is a, a call to self-hatred. It's not a call to self-rejection. Jesus isn't telling us necessarily to think poorly of ourselves, although 
although there are some parts of you that you should think poorly of. It's a call to take ourselves out of the center of our own attention. But this is the instinct we're born with, isn't it? To think of ourselves, of our own comfort, of our own well-being above everything else. We all do it. You do it. I do it. We evaluate every situation based on what is best for us. We make decisions based on what we want, based on what we crave, based on what we desire. Do you see how different it is when we consider what Jesus says? Jesus says that those who would follow him must consider him and his ways and his glory first. So we don't come to Jesus so that he can serve us, although he does. No, we come to Jesus recognizing our call to serve him. And we don't come to Jesus so that he can submit to our will. No, friends, we we come to Jesus admitting that we must submit to him. Well, I think we all admit this intellectually and theologically. Isn't it something we struggle to live out? Because you want what you want. And we're all prone to thinking that we know what's best. So we work hard to justify ourselves and to justify our desires, even when the word of God clearly pushes us the other way. So contrary to what Jesus says here. Jesus says anyone who comes after me must deny himself. It's a call to value Jesus above anything else. It's a call to value his opinion over your own. Wonder how well you do when your opinion is different than God's truth. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the story of the rich young ruler. We're going to get to it here in sometime, Mark chapter 10. It's a story of a man who comes to Jesus and asks him, what do, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And there's some back and forth in the conversation, and Jesus tells him, reminds him of all the things that the law says. And the man says, I, I've done all those things. I've, I've kept the law fully. And then Jesus says this, you lack one thing, Mark 10, 21. Jesus tells him, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Now, we need to be careful. We don't want to hear Jesus saying that we can earn our salvation by good works. That's not the point of the story. What Jesus is doing is he's revealing what the man loved. He's telling him that if you're going to follow me, you must be willing to give away that which you value above all things. Verse 22, we see the man's response. And maybe this is your response when God pushes you to give up that which you value more than anything. Says the man was disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. What we see in the story is an example of a man who loved himself and loved what he had more than he loved Jesus. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't call all of us to sell everything we have. 
but he may call some of us to that. And he does call every one of us to love him more than we love anything else. It's a matter of our affections. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. It's a call to love Christ above all. To place the will of God above our own will. That's the first thing. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What should we expect? What's the nature of Christianity? We hear from the lips of Jesus. Here's the first thing. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to come to Jesus first, you must deny yourself. That's different. There's more. The second part of the call to follow Jesus is a call to sacrifice and to suffering. We keep reading. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and then take up his cross and follow me. It's one of those verses that we have to work really hard to make sure we're hearing it through the, the ears of the first hearers. For us, it can be easy to fall into the trap of thinking the cross primarily as a religious symbol, a metaphor. But remember that they had never heard language like this in this context. What did they hear when Jesus said, take up your cross? Well, their mind went to an instrument of brutal execution. Jesus was saying, you take up an instrument of death and follow me. What's this about? What does he mean, take up your cross? Well, what they would remember is that when someone had been sentenced, they would be given the cross beam of a cross, that, that cross portion, and they would carry that from the place of judgment, the place of sentencing, to the place of execution. They would carry the instrument of their death. This person was suffering and on their way to die. And this is the imagery that Jesus uses. This is the way he describes what's expected of those of us who follow him. It's his way of saying that those who follow him should not expect an easy road. The way of Jesus is not only a way of self-denial, the way of Jesus is a way of sacrifice and of suffering. I trust you recognize how different this is from the way that Christianity is often described. It's a far cry from come to Jesus and he'll fulfill all your hopes and dreams. It's a far cry from where many of us ever allow ourselves to get in following Christ. I wonder, when you're put in a situation where suffering is required of you for the sake of Christ, how well do you do? I think we're quick to pull back anytime serving God or serving others involves inconvenience, much less suffering. If serving God or serving others means we're, we're put out, it takes too much time or too much money or, or too much risk, we're quick to decide that it should be avoided. And I'm afraid that many of us have any concept of what it truly means to suffer for Christ because, like I said, inconvenience is enough to turn us away. We forget that the call to follow him is a call to sacrifice and suffering. So we should not be surprised 
if following Jesus doesn't come naturally. If we just do what comes naturally, we will never fulfill the commands of God. We shouldn't be surprised if following him seems demanding. We should not be surprised if following him becomes costly. We shouldn't be surprised if others think we're fools. We shouldn't be surprised because we've read the expectations. We have good and accurate information about what it means to be a follower of Christ. We shouldn't assume that following Christ will spare us from suffering or from the difficulties of life, even in America, even in Round Rock. We're told we should expect this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. A lot more we could say about that. But Jesus actually says a lot. So let's, let's go to what he says. Verses 35 through 38. We get four statements, all starting with the word for. F-O-U-R, F-O-R. Okay? Four statements, beginning with four, and four reasons why we should do the things that God has called us to do. I've consolidated them into three because two of them are very similar. Why should we deny ourselves? Why should we be willing to sacrifice and suffer for the sake of Christ? We see the first reason in verse 35. For because whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We, we can't unpack everything in each one of these this morning. But let's get the big idea. I think the big idea in verse 35, I said it on your notes this way. You should follow Christ at all costs because it's the way of salvation. It's the way that leads to salvation. Jesus says, if we spend our lives trying to hang on to our lives to save what we perceive as important, if we give ourselves to holding on to ourselves, we'll lose everything. But, on the other hand, if we let go of our desires, if we lose our lives for his sake, we gain eternal life. You should follow Christ at all costs because it's the way of salvation. I do want to be careful. When we read these sayings of Jesus, we should read them in the context of the rest of Scripture. I think we could read these and be tempted to think that Jesus is saying you can earn your salvation. Give away everything. Deny yourself. Earn this gift. He's not talking about earning our salvation, but he is talking about the affections of our hearts. What rules your heart? See, if we've truly repented of our sins and given ourselves to him, then we will want to live a life fully committed to him. But if our confession of Christ is superficial, if it's in word only or in church attendance alone, we may claim Christ, but prove by our actions that we are living not for him, but for ourselves. This is what comes naturally. We cling to what's easy. We do what's most pleasurable. But Jesus tells us that a life given to the things we can see will end in death. While a life given to him leads to life. Reminded me of the well-known saying of Jim Elliot. Maybe you're familiar with that name a missionary to a remote tribe in Ecuador in the 1950s. And he became known 
primarily to us because he and four other missionaries were all brutally killed by the very people that they went to serve. And the story doesn't end there. It actually continues as his wife, after his murder, goes back to try to minister to the same people who killed her husband and their co-laborers. Incredible examples of exactly what Jesus is talking about here. After his death, the reading of Jim Elliott's journal, there was a comment written on the very verse that we're considering. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And Jim Elliott wrote this just months before his death. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. It's a great rephrasing of the message of Jesus. That if we cling to what's temporary, we risk losing what's eternal. Jesus says something very similar in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. For where I am, there will my servant also be. The first reason that we should follow Jesus at all costs, denying ourselves, sacrificing all, suffering, the reason why is because when we follow him, we're walking the way of salvation. Second, you should follow Jesus at all costs because of the value of your soul. It's similar, but a little different emphasis. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What he's encouraging us to consider is that our soul, something that we cannot see, is more valuable than the things that we can see. We all recognize the lure, the temptation to gain as much as we can. For some, maybe for you, the lure is to power, to climb the ladder, to get status and to get authority. Maybe power doesn't matter to you. For you, it's the lure of riches, to have more and more and to have a, a sense of security. I think some of us think money's not my idol because I don't want a lot. But man, I do want enough to feel comfortable. And even at that level, it could be a ruling desire. For some, it's the lure of success. And sometimes all of this is masked in a desire to do good. I want to be successful in business or in this organization so we can help others. We may be trying to earn money so we can be generous. Desire position so we can have positive influence. But even still, position, money, and success often, even if entered on good, with good intentions, can take our eyes off of Christ. So we give ourselves to things that are temporary and fleeting and lose sight of what's eternal. And what Jesus is pushing us to consider is that we're giving our lives to things that will burn. and forgetting our eternal soul. And so we have to push ourselves, sometimes to make hard decisions. 
Because if your position tempts you to take your eyes away from Christ, then you should walk away. And if your money sways your affections from Christ, then you should get rid of it. And if your success turns your focus away from Christ, you should let it go. What does a profit a man to gain the whole world? Forfeit his soul. What could you give in return for your soul? There's nothing worth the price of your soul. But I fear we're consumed by things we see and give little or no thought to our souls. Jesus told another story. We've already read one story from Jesus about a rich man. There's another one he told, this one in Luke chapter 12. I'll just read it for you. Jesus tells this parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your souls require of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And then here's the truth for us to consider. So is the one who lays up for himself treasure and is not rich towards God. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Barns and barns and barns full. And to lose a soul. Why should we follow Jesus down the path of self-denial? Why should we follow Jesus down the path of sacrifice and of suffering? First, because it's the way that leads to salvation. Second, because of the value of your soul. Third, because one day, you and I, we're going to stand before him face to face. Verse 38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now, let's just pull away for just a second. Let me mention this. What Jesus says here. This is a huge revelation, and the disciples probably do not fully understand what's being said here. Jesus, right here in this moment, is declaring himself to be God. People often say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. He says right here that he's going to go away, and that he's going to come again in the glory of God and with holy angels. This is a huge statement. This is stuff that the disciples have not considered yet. But he's pointing them forward. He's pointing us forward to the day when he will return. We'll see him face to face. And I wonder how often you think about that day. The day when you will stand before God. As believers, of those who have been covered with the blood of Christ, it should be a day of great hope. But it should also push us to stay faithful. Here's the thrust of the verse. On that day, when Jesus returns, those who have denied Christ in this life, those who have been ashamed to call him Lord, on that day, they're going to be turned away. And on that day, those who have believed and are true followers of his will be welcomed by him. 
a day of great hope. It's also a great warning, isn't it? Even as those who know we're his, there should be a, I want to say a hint of trembling, but maybe a lot of trembling, to know that we will stand before God. Jesus uses the language of shame. You don't like to be embarrassed. Neither do I. None of us likes to be in a situation where we feel shame. He describes the world here in verse 38 as adulterous and sinful. So we live among a people who have rebelled against God, who have no fear of him. And you may be tempted in your school or in your workplace or maybe even in your own home. You may be tempted to save face by shying away from your allegiance to Christ. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to feel shame. Once again, it's a sign of thinking too highly of the things of earth and the opinions of men and not highly enough of the opinion of God. Because we could trade embarrassment today for incredible shame on that final day. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words today in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Once again, he's speaking about our affections. It's another verse. Jesus makes really big, true statements, but also statements that we could take and say, there was that one time when I cowered. There was that one time when I held my tongue. Have I lost my hope of salvation? Oh, church, be thankful for forgiveness and grace. But don't miss the warning. We are called to be a people who love Jesus and who will stand for him. And he says here and in other passages, if we deny him, he will deny us. Maybe you've been tempted at times to soften the words of Jesus. He says in Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Hard statements. The point is that we should be more fearful of being rejected on the last day than we are of being rejected on this day. Be more fearful of what happens on the last day than what could happen on this day. One is far more costly than the other. So why? Why would we walk a path of self-denial? Why would we walk a path of sacrifice and of suffering? Well, because it's the path that leads to salvation. Because your soul is of great value. Because one day you will stand before God. We all will stand before God. We're almost done. Let me pull this back. Let's try to get the big picture. Let's try to bring three weeks together if we can. It started with the confession of Peter, his belief that Jesus is the Christ. Friends, I hope your confession is the same. I hope you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've seen over the last two weeks that Peter's confession was only the beginning of his faith, not the end. If you've made a profession of Christ, I rejoice in that. But you must know it's not the end of your faith. It's the beginning of your faith. Peter had to learn that when in the very next breath he stands up and tells Jesus, you're wrong. 
How many of us, after confessing Christ as Lord, look him in the face and say, you're wrong here. This is not the way my life should go. It's a process. Peter had to learn that following Jesus meant trusting him. He thought Jesus was going to establish his kingdom then and there. Jesus tells him first, I must suffer and die. Jesus must walk the road himself. And he did. He walked the road of self-denial and suffering and sacrifice. And now he tells us that all who follow him must do the same. And don't forget that this was as much a surprise or more so to Peter than it may be to you. They had expectations of what it meant to follow Jesus. A king and a kingdom. And you have expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. He'll make all things good and right. And you know what? They're right and we're right. He is the king establishing his kingdom and he will make all things right in his time. So we must follow him the way he defined and be faithful. We're almost done. I've, I've said that already, haven't I? We come to this point and you say, we're at the end of the chapter, it's a good stopping place. And I'll just push back and say, I don't think the chapter ends in the right place. We really should have chapter eight, verse 35. This verse actually goes along with it. Jesus says in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, I think this is the conclusion of this talk with his disciples, with the crowds. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And for those of you who are theologically minded, who like to think through hard things, you may recognize the difficulty of this verse. Lots of questions here. What is Jesus talking about that the kingdom of God will come in power before some, not all of these men, die? What event is he referring to here? Some have suggested it's the second coming, except all of him have died and he has not come. Some suggest it's his resurrection, but at that point, none of them had died, except perhaps Judas. Others have suggested it refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit, but that has the same problem as the resurrection. Still others point to the very next event, the one we'll look at next, the transfiguration when Jesus is shown in his glory. There's your lunch discussion. We won't try to sort out exactly what event Jesus is referring to here today, but let's get the, the big takeaway what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is coming with power. What exactly that looks like and when exactly that looks like, I'll let you decide at lunch. But don't miss the hope. The kingdom of God is coming in power. And I think Jesus says this as an encouragement. You must follow me, which will mean denying yourself. It will mean suffering and sacrifice. It will be costly, but know this. The king is coming. He's coming in power, and all will be made right. 
It's a high calling, but it's a calling of great hope. Whoever saves his life for my sake, excuse me, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. As we close, I want to quickly talk to three groups that might be here this morning. First, perhaps you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ. And maybe you're here because you were hoping that if you came to Jesus, you would avoid the difficulties of life. You've come looking for joy, peace, and purpose. And I've spent 40 minutes telling you that the way of Jesus is hard. It is. It will cost you everything. But the Bible is also clear that there is no other path that will lead you to true joy and true peace. It's also true that all those who reject Jesus will be rejected by him. Jesus did come, he did suffer, and he did die. And because of that, all who believe in him have the hope of the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. So if you've come searching for hope, know this, it is only found in Jesus. And to follow Jesus means denying yourself. It means sacrifice and suffering, but it leads to true rest. And peace. Now for the second group. Maybe there are some of you here who are followers of Christ, but your life is very comfortable. So you're not sure what to make of this passage. And it's true, we live in a unique time and place. Where we may be doing everything God has called us to do, but it may not feel like suffering. If that's you, let me encourage you to consider your heart. Ask yourself the question, how am I doing by way of loving God with all of my heart, all of my soul, with all of my strength? Do you love him more than you love yourself? Do you desire to obey him more than you desire to please yourself? How eager are you to gather with the people of God for worship even when it's inconvenient? Just practical ways of evaluating our hearts. Am I willing to give it all? Or am I holding back? How are you in loving and serving others more than yourself? How faithful are you to go out of your way to serve and encourage and support others? About sharing the gospel? Is it even on your radar? Are you being faithful to tell others of their need for Christ? This is the call to follow Jesus. And if we're doing all these things, loving him with all of our heart, loving others selflessly and sacrificially, sharing the gospel, my guess is we may not feel as comfortable as we do now. I thought of this after a conversation Gabriel and I shared a while back. We can come to passages like this and realize I feel like I'm giving everything I'm supposed to give, but I'm not suffering. What, what do I do with passages like this? And if you're a parent, I would encourage you to take this to heart and to teach your kids what it means to lose everything. We may not be forced to give up everything in our lifetime, but your kids might. So let's teach them well that following Jesus means self-denial. And following Jesus means sacrifice. And following Jesus means suffering. Because you may be long in the ground when they're faced with that decision. 
Oh, that they would remember that they are a fool to hang on to what they cannot keep and to give up what they could not earn. The reality is if we're being faithful, there will be times when we recognize the cost of the calling. So I wanna end with encouragement. Some of you are counting the costs and feeling the weight of the calling. You know that following Jesus is hard. Can I remind you that the one who has called you has said he will never leave you and he will never forsake you and he will be with you always, even to death, even to the end of the age. And do you remember what Jesus' focus was as he went to the cross? The writer of Hebrews says that he walked his road of suffering for the joy that was set before him. For the joy. So friends, if you're walking the road and you feel the weight, keep looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And now, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider him, so that you will not grow weary, and so you will not grow faint-hearted. Consider the joy.